Meta debuted Threads, a Twitter alternative that has quickly become the fastest growing social media network in history. Can it sustain its rapid rise and what will this mean for Musk? Then we'll turn to a pair of Supreme Court decisions upending higher education, one on student loans and the other on affirmative action. Given that we took last week off, we have a lot to say about those two decisions and we're going to bring on Richard Collenberg, who is an expert witness in both the Harvard and UNC cases when they were at their earliest stages and he was cited by multiple parties at the Supreme Court in their briefs. And he's particularly going to talk about what's the future of college admissions and what do we have at our disposal if we want to create a more equitable college and university environment. So all of that and more on today's episode of The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. All right, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, where do we find you today? I am back in New York. It feels like it's been like a year and a half since we last did this, to be honest. I know. What has it been? About two weeks now, I guess, since I think the it's last been time? like a week and a half, but, or I guess two weeks. Is maybe. that right? Yeah, but that's, it just feels like eons. Where are you? I'm in uh, Pienza, Tuscany right now. Uh, I've been here for about 10 days. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful little town, uh, just like uh, an old medieval town where the internet is horrendous. And so I think I found the one good connection in this entire town. So hopefully it'll sustain itself for this conversation. You look like you're in like a cellar. Where are you? It's a beautiful apartment at the top of this building, just in the middle of town right now. So, yeah. But I think, you know, this is great timing because I can't wait to get your take on this thread situation. I've yet to really see the test case for it. I signed up for it, I must admit, and apparently more than 100 million other people did as well, which is far faster than even ChatGPT, which got to that same stat in two months. Um, I'm trying to figure out, I haven't posted anything and I've managed to acquire over a thousand followers. I don't really understand that, nor do I understand who no, I'm following brag. and why. No, I don't. I just don't understand. Like I'm following a bunch of people that, I, I feel like I followed on Instagram in middle school and I don't really care about their takes on politics. So I'm trying to figure out what this is for and and what the test case is. So, so when we talked about this yesterday, you were you were a little skeptical and I'll, I'll posit a theory, which is you're quite defensive of your guy Musk. Mm. And uh, I think you view this as a threat to his empire. It's just because I think he'd win the literal dick measuring contest that he... Oh my God. To Zach. Zach the cock. <laughs> it, I'm glad. <laughs> really good, really, okay, really well, good me, sportsmanship on our side of the aisle here. Yeah. Let me attempt to explain what you're talking about here, which is Musk and we talked about how Musk and, and Zuckerberg had been going back and forth about having a MMA fight or cage fight, as they put it. Musk's, I think, is, you know, viewed this threads as a, a huge threat to him. You know, as a comparison, and this is obviously before Musk took over, but Twitter took two years to reach 1 million users. Threads got to 100 million in a matter of days. And this also comes as Twitter itself is having issues, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second. But among the many erratic things Musk has done over the past week, one of them was to tweet that he wanted to have an actual dick measuring contest to Zuckerberg. I'm not sure what if Zuckerberg actually replied. I think he I saw something that he might have replied saying, let me get out my microscope or something, which is actually not a it's a pretty funny response. I think like I, I think this is this whole like 
who do you like better, Musk or Zuckerberg or whatever, kind of reminds me of this, you know, that sort of Russian warlord who is fighting Putin. It's like, I'm not sure I want to line up behind any billionaire right now. What I'd rather do is take a step back and just say, as objectively as possible, what does the rise of threads mean? And is this a real threat to Twitter's dominance? And or, you know, Gary Vee put out a video recently where he's basically like, this is just an and situation. Like, this is a new platform that'll offer new opportunities. The world is about and, not or. For everybody here, whether you like the idea, whether you like Meta, whether you like Threads or not, go sign up, figure it out, go try. It's incredibly important that you go and try new things. Whether you end up liking it or not is completely irrelevant. The key when there's new platforms that matter, that come out, is you tasting it, you trying it. I'm skeptical of that just given how this just literally looks exactly like Twitter. And a lot of the people who I see on threads are actively saying that they're using it as a Twitter alternative. So my sense is given the rapid growth, given the explicit aims, of Meta and given the struggles that Twitter has had over the past few months, I do think this is a huge threat to Twitter. I'm not sure it is. I mean, I take the 100 million signups with a grain of salt in the sense that this is already like you just basically click a button on your Instagram account. It's not like a totally brand new company that's completely disconnected. So I think that that obviously the the ease of signing up is an element here, but it's still an enormously impressive number. But I think the biggest challenge that they're going to have here is is they're saying they're a more positive town square. And for communities that Twitter didn't necessarily attract in the first place. But I think there's like a real question to be asked when you when you're importing the people that you follow on Instagram, like I, I, maybe it's just me, but I follow a bunch of people on Instagram. It's a more personal sort of people that I know in real life, people that I, that I know from different chapters in my life versus on Twitter. I follow a bunch of people who are totally different. I care about their brain and what they think and not necessarily like their, their photos from whatever party oh, they were at last week. fired at your Instagram followers. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I, I frankly don't brains. really want, I definitely don't want to hear about what my NYU friends have to say about politics. That's for sure. So I think there's like, there's a question in my mind about like, the, is it just a totally different test case? Cause I, I kind of see threads more in at least the stuff that I'm seeing in my feed after I imported stuff from, um, from my Instagram as like a, like a Facebook timeline sort of thing where it's like, what are my friends saying and doing? versus what does this like political commentator think about this thing? I don't know. That's just kind of my sense. It's it's less it's less thought provoking stuff, I would say. Not that everything on Twitter is by any means. I think a couple things. One is I think people talk about the the ease of moving your followers from Instagram over to Threads as if it's a knock against Threads. I actually think it's a huge advantage that it has and at least Musk and Mosseri from Meta both seem, not Musk, um, Zuckerberg and Mosseri, uh, the sort of head of Instagram and threads over at Meta, both indicate that they have a lot more tools at their disposal to drive users from Instagram over to threads because there's still a ton more they could do. And this doesn't even include the EU, which it, they don't, threads is not active in the EU because of the sort of regulatory fights over there. So you could see this grow much more dramatically. And to me, this seems to be an advantage they have, not a disadvantage. And that 100 million people still needed to download another app and start using it. And I think we'll start to get a sense in the next few weeks and months, whether these people are actually using it or not, or whether they just downloaded it 
and just wanted to check it out and you know we're you know, cooled by the kind of the different kind of tone that you see on threads relative to both Instagram and Twitter but one thing that seems to be true is that in the first 2 days that threads was fully available traffic to Twitter's website was down 5% compared to the same 2 days the previous week this is according to similar web which tracks online activity year over year traffic was down 11% Cloudfare tweeted that, quote, Twitter traffic is tanking. And so those are just two groups that look at Twitter's data. And Musk uh, and the what's uh, Yaccarino, the Twitter CEO, both tweeted like a very weird metric uh, they were, they, where they claim that Twitter's attention or something, some weird like um, it seemed like you know, newly baked metric that they said it was up. And then a bunch of former Twitter employees seemed to dunk on them saying this is a made up stat. Uh, to me, this seems like you take this together with the fact that Twitter has stopped paying a lot of its bills and faces potential bankruptcy. This tells me that this is a real threat to Musk, which may be why he's, you know, challenging people to dick measuring contests. I mean, it might just be one of the a slew of challenges, but I don't think that it's causing the the potential bankruptcy. And I mean, I think there's there are a lot of other missteps that he's already made that already put him in this position. But I'll say one thing I'm not into about this threads thing. I think their aesthetic, I like their app and like the the graphics and stuff a little bit better. It's, it feels a little fresher than Twitter. But I don't like that there's already been like little censorship issues. Like, for example, they say that this was an error, but Donald Trump Jr., anyone who tried to follow him on threads was getting messages that said, are you sure you want to follow Donald Trump Jr.? This account has repeatedly posted false information and was reviewed by independent fact checkers or went against your community guidelines. Like, I don't I don't love that it seems that there is maybe it was by error, but that they're importing some degree of fact checking censorship regimes that were already in the meta verse or meta universe, not metaverse. Um, like I just, I, I, that makes me concerned um, for the, the long-term implications. And I don't love Facebook's content moderation, nor do I love Instagram's content moderation. And I certainly think that there's a potential that that just repeats history on threads. Yeah, I think the challenge though for for people in your position who want a more libertarian leaning social media network is that Musk never delivered on that promise. No, well, that's true. You know, he but repeatedly went after political enemies. There, you know, it's it's a standard without, you know, there's there's no standard bearer right now. And I think to me, I'll take them at their word. We'll see like if they repeatedly censor people without a rationale, then you know, this is the early days of it. So if they reinstated Donald Trump Jr. without that, then, you know, no harm, no foul, move on, right? But I think as this is happening, um, what was that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, know if it's no harm, no At the same no time foul. that this is going on, at the same time this is going on, the CEO of Twitter has repeatedly stated his intention to censor people, including people yeah, for I'm using the word cisgender. Yeah, I'm completely game for a third, for a th another alternative. Like the... Bitcoin blockchain social media we all own a little piece sort of alternative I'd be I'd be totally game for it I don't I don't I think it's a false binary of choosing between which billionaire's dick you think is bigger it's just not that's that's not the world I want to live in yeah, but I think it's a matter of emphasis right like I hear on the right all the time about a whole lot of censorship but I'm like well yeah in this case what you just described was meta what it sounds like inappropriately warning people on Donald Trump Jr. and then saying it was a mistake. Then I see Elon Musk 
who's saying cisgender is a is a slur, banning reporters for reporting on the account of the person tracking his private jet and doing a whole sort of other things, including aggressively pre-complying with autocratic regimes and semi-autocratic regimes like India that want to suppress speech and dramatically increasing suppression of speech and often describing his intention explicitly to do those things and not apologizing for it, not backtracking. And so to me, this is, this is not a... I'm not a nihilist. I'm not a moral relativist. I actually do think some people are better than others at this. And I think at least meta to me, like in the example given, that to me is lukewarm compared to the piping hot censorship that we've seen from Musk on Twitter. Not only that, but he's just repeatedly shown himself not to be a credible person. The guy has just basically stopped paying his bills. Puck reported on this. He's suing Wachtell, the law firm that actually put together the deal on the Twitter side of things for millions of dollars and unpaid bills there. He hasn't even paid Oracle which is, you know, the CEO of Oracle is one of his biggest investors. He hasn't paid Joel Frank PR. The $830,000 that they owe that current and former employees are suing him, alleging that he stiffed them on their bonuses. He's not even paying the arbitrator in that very uh, negotiation with those employees. I can go on, but this is a guy who's not paying his bills, a guy who claimed that this was going to be a free speech bastion and it's not, and a guy who's seeing his users decline. Um, at least both relative to threads, but also in the long run. And I'm saying, and and I think like, as we look back on this we say, well, okay, if we're scoring this right now, so far his leadership has been a failed enterprise, both on the free speech side of things and on the business side of things. I'm not going to fight you on that. I think it's time to move over to truth social. <laughs> it's truth social time <laughs> for me. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Wasn't there like another <laughs> one for a while? What was that Mastodon or whatever the hell that was? These things still exist. But that was supposed yeah, to be what Blue threads Sky, and all that. are now, right? I don't know. I think this, maybe there's... But when well, I'm, We're all going into our little rabbit holes. when I'm holes. scoring this... This is bad, I think. There's no public forum anymore. The thing about this is Mastodon, Blue Sky, all that claimed to be an alternative, but what they didn't do is get 100 million followers in a matter of days. That's, That's why I take this much more but seriously they were than also, else. I also would prefer a grassroots, like starting some new thing versus like... Great. Now Zuckerberg is back and we have another way in which we're going to be slaves to meta. Well, I just think the question people should ask themselves is, what do you want to get out of social media? I downloaded threads. I looked at it for a while. I read through the threads. I have a whole sense of what's going on right now, which is basically you've got an Instagram culture clashing with Twitter culture. And I think the Twitter people are kind of appalled by the kind of like, rise and shine, what are you doing today? And shirtless workout photos and like, here are my five favorite quotes from Aristotle or whatever, versus like the style of Instagram engagement. I would, I mean, uh, Twitter engagement. And I would say like, neither of them is my vibe. And I, that's why I seldom post on most social media, except for you know, basically Twitter, I mean, uh, Instagram, but even there, like I have to redown the app every time I want to use it on my phone and I block it for big chunks of the day. But I stared at this thing and I was like, all right, like maybe this is an opportunity to re-engage with the Twitter-like platform. And then I was like, I don't really have a goal for this. And so the only thing I've posted is about an event we're doing in LA for the branch, which I feel is a professional obligation, but personally, I don't have any use for it. I agree. I don't like any social media at all, including Twitter. I just do it because I feel like I have to career-wise. Well, okay. We'll, we'll keep score. I mean, no matter how much we want to quit Musk, he keep, we keep coming back to him. We'll I don't see want to quit it. I think this, this is threat super fun. Do you I really? Mean, I don't agree. Yeah, I don't agree with it. Like, I'm not defending it. It's just ridiculously entertaining and bizarre. I mean, this is 
he's just given us a lot of material. Yeah, I just think that two things about this bother me. One is the idea that we have to pick a billionaire, which I know is a yeah, false choice, but it is too. the way people are engaging. And then I think two is the fact that the, the fact that which social media platform reuses a question that we feel we have to answer versus whether we use social media at all, which is the more important question to me and how we could decrease our use of it. I suspect that there are a lot of people over the weekend who either because of like problems they had with Musk or problems they had with Twitter or problems they just had with their own screen time had taken a step back from social media that re-engaged because it was a new shiny object. I certainly could see that. I, I myself looked at it more and re-deleted the app uh, because I like, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I want to see what's going on. And then I'm like, well, what is my goal here? Like my goal should be to get outside. I'm sitting in an Italian village that's really beautiful right now. Why am I staring at this app with people posting, you know, pithy like chat GPT generated sentences to try to impress each other? Like it's it, it's more often fraudulent than not. Well, guess what, Ravi? You can go outside and no one is making you pick. No one is making you pick. You don't have to pick. You can delete both. You can go off the grid and live in Italy. That's fine. You're allowed to. Uh, Ricky, we we haven't talked in a while, and the Supreme Court helpfully handed down a bunch of decisions as we were breaking for the July 4th break. I did a quick affirmative action sort of thoughts um, just as I touched down here in Italy uh, and have just been reading everything possible, both about the student loan and the affirmative action case. And we'll get to the affirmative action case, but the student loan cases, we've covered this a lot. And as we predicted, by a 6-3 vote, the justices ruled that the Biden administration overstepped its authority last year when it announced that it would cancel up to $400 billion in student loans. Um, the Biden administration was basically going to grant relief to 43 million Americans who are awaiting this decision. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the decision of the court. And uh, for longtime listeners, we have primed you on this because we talked about this thing called the major questions doctrine. And we'll link to the show notes. Um, many times we've talked about the major questions doctrine. But basically, this was a, a doctrine of the Supreme Court that had not been robustly applied until this recent configuration of the court. And essentially, the theory is that whenever Congress uh, delivers a sort of vague statutory language that gives a broad authority to administrators like the EPA in a previous case that we talked about, uh, in this case, the Department of Education and the Biden administration, if it's a vague and broad statute that has major economic consequence then this particular Supreme Court in embracing the major questions doctrine is going to be skeptical of an administration taking that broad authority and, uh, you know, doing anything of major economic consequence that's not specifically outlined in the statute. In this case, it was the HEROES Act, which basically mm -hmm. granted the administration under the administration's read, granted the administration the ability to you know, fiddle with uh, student loans. And the question was, well, what would it mean if they just granted broad relief? The court says you don't have that ability to do that. Yeah. And so by invoking the HEROES Act, which traditionally would have been like invoked in times of literal war to forgive student debt for people that 
potentially would be drafted or something like that. Like, I mean, it, it seemed like it was going to be an overstep no matter what. I mean, Nancy Pelosi herself had said as much that this was not within the president's authority. And that was something that was actually quoted in the majority opinion um, by the Supreme Court. So, you know, that came back to bite them. I think there was a lot of getting caught trying, a lot of pandering to younger voters, in my opinion, because I think this was a hopeless and doomed uh, proposal in the first place. I think there could have been um, broom potentially for some bipartisan support, even for something that was more restorative and reforming going forward to stop the next generation of kids from doing literally the exact same thing, which, you know, there was nothing about this proposal that would do that. But um, Biden has said the fight is not over. AOC has said we're not going down without a fight as well. Um, and they're already like, as basically the second the ruling came down, they are exploring alternatives, including how they can invoke the Higher Education Act to effectively do the same thing, which I'm suspicious of because if that wasn't their first choice and their first choice already failed, I don't think there's, their second choice is going to be any more legally sound. Um, but that allows the that act allows the government to compromise or waive um, student debt. And it is a more rigorous process that is called negotiated rulemaking, which the Department of Education announced they're already doing. But that will involve a lot of public hearings. Um, it'll be a lot more bureaucratic. And I'm I'm not convinced that this will be um, a meaningful alternative. But I think it it leaves a wide, clear opening for Republicans to come out and actually have a good restorative alternative plan that would fix this system in a more serious way. And, you know, that would help in 2024, I think, for sure, in terms of getting young voters. Well, I anxiously await the details of that plan. I think I think if there's if we're separating this out from the legal, from the policy side of things, from a legal perspective, I'm puzzled by the Supreme Court's logic and the major questions doctrine generally, because and there was a back and forth here between Kagan um, and Barrett's. Uh, where Kagan and you know because Roberts wrote the opinion of the court, Barrett wrote a concurrence where she addressed Kagan's charge, and Kagan's charge was that hey, you guys all claim to be textualists, which means that you take the literal meaning of a statute. The literal meaning of the statute says we have this authority, and so you're not textualists. Essentially, what she's saying, which is what I said previously when we talked about the major questions doctrine, I continue to believe that it's a made up doctrine that is squarely at odds with textualism because yeah, it's if it, if the statute's broad, the statute's broad. Right, it doesn't matter to me what Congress intended in that case. If they give the broad authority, they give the broad authority. And I think if we're looking at the Higher Education Act of 1965, for example, to me, there's no question that this authority applies. So this is the this is these are the words that it uses. It says it allows the Secretary of Education to quote enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release debt. Right. So. It can waive mm-hmm. or release debt. Now that it's going to be a more cumbersome process, et cetera. But my my sense is the Biden administration won't do the blanket relief that they did before. So they'll try to learn a lesson to avoid the major questions doctrine here and make it a little bit more targeted. Uh, historically, this has been used in cases of distressed debt. So people who've gone into default and the the, the basically this law as intended is meant to give the Secretary of Education, the ability to say, all right, this is a situation we wouldn't be able to collect otherwise, so I want authority to negotiate a settlement, right? But the language is what the language is. And in this case, I have different opinions on the policy and whether this is good policy or not, but I think legally, I'm left scratching my head here as I read this decision. I mean, I think there's, in terms of you you anxiously await policy 
ideas from me. I have plenty. <laughs> not and you. I think, no, no, not you. No, no, I meant, oh, I meant oh, from you when you said the, the Republican administration. It wasn't a dig at you. No, no. Oh, yeah. No, I think, I, think Repub- I think Republicans, like this is, I actually, I wouldn't be surprised if like Vivek Ramaswamy was someone who would come out with a um, positive restorative idea here. He seems like the kind of guy that's actually like generating new ideas. But there's so much like, I mean, I, I'm glad that this avenue will make them do a more tailored um, forgiveness potentially because the $125,000 cutoff was completely arbitrary to me. It makes no sense to me to to forgive the loans of a 22-year-old making that much money versus a 42-year-old making that much money in terms of long-term earning potential. Like There were so many things about this that just were not sound in my mind at all whatsoever. Um, but I feel like there's just so much that is just being left on the table in terms of actually fixing this for the next generation. I'm concerned that the precedent that's being set by all these countless attempts is that more people are going to take out loans with the ex- expectation that maybe it'll be forgiven, that people are being given false hope, um, that it's only emboldening schools to continue to to raise tuition costs. And like, I think there's a way that we could tie the effectiveness of specific programs to whether or not someone gets a loan because these schools are not being held accountable in the slightest. Um, A third of colleges in this country produce classes in which the median graduate makes less than the average high school graduate. And there are schools that are just being kept alive by by federal loans that kids can't get out of. 17-year-olds are signing their life away. And we're doing absolutely nothing to say, like, how are these schools still existing in the free market, which they wouldn't? And like, how are we still pumping money into them and allowing people to tank their futures and tank their down payments? And like the thing that gets under my skin more than anything is in terms of master's programs, the number one master's program where people default the highest, the highest percentage of graduates default on their loans is Columbia University's freaking film program, which Columbia (laughs) has billions of dollars in their endowment and how we as taxpayers are going to bail out the Columbia film graduates. And Columbia is not bailing out their freaking Columbia film graduates. That makes me so mad. So I think there's just a lot of room for better solutions than what the Biden administration is pulling out of their ass. Yeah, I think on the policy front, I largely agree. I think as we've talked about before, and we'll link in the show notes, I wrote something about this on the pros and cons of student debt relief when it happened, when Biden originally proposed it. My sense was the problem they're trying to solve by and large is a is a is a valiant and valid problem to solve right which is debt in and of itself is a problem they're not solving the problem though yeah and they're saying like they're trying to solve it right like if you're if we're using the like if we're trying to assume the what best, is solving they're not fixing it they're well, just well, they're solving throwing the debt. money at it and saying it, it's going away. Well, it depends on who you are, right? If if you are done with college and you have the debt, they're solving it for you. Now, they're not solving it systemically, mm-hmm. which is the reason why I'm skeptical of this particular series of interventions. Is that in some ways they can make it worse because if they signal the intention of the federal government to repeatedly uh, re- relieve student debt at a time when college uh, costs are, you know rising much uh, faster than inflation until very recently. And very recently, they started to come down a little bit. Um, But college costs have have been out of control. Uh, The universities have resisted every attempt at holding them accountable, including, as we've discussed, the the Obama administration's attempt to hold universities accountable to a shared standard of effectiveness, which was their first step. They were trying to, to basically create a rating system 
given that the federal government sends so much money, both through student loans, grants, you know, tax subsidies, given that they're mostly tax exempt, um, the Obama administration attempted to rank and rate those universities. They fought back, and unfortunately, they did have allies in Congress and Republicans in Congress, basically eviscerated any ability to create a standard, which would have been the first step to say, all right, we will only send loans to people who attend yeah. universities that are effective at getting people jobs, right? Now, that would be a really welcome step here, and I would be much more amenable to student loan relief if it were tied to that kind of incentive. And two is like just jobs generally that we need, right? Nurses, doctors, et cetera. We've talked about this before. If we expanded those programs, mm -hmm. now the Higher Education Act has some version of this that grants the authority of the Secretary of Education to do this. And in Biden's defense, he has tried to expand this program. I just think it needs to be way more robust. If you did that, like what are the jobs we need? What are the universities that do a really good job of getting people those jobs? And 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 added a third element, which is which universities are good at decreasing overall costs over time and being efficient on costs. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, all right, I'm I'm starting to warm up to relief. And I would even be willing to consider relief retroactively to programs that didn't meet that criteria if it were just coupled with the right kind of criteria and teeth moving forward, but none of that happened here. And so I agree with you at the, the sort of root question of like, is this going to solve anything? I think that the, the legal reasoning here is suspect, but I think the policy aims of the Biden administration, or the, the, at least the policy means, I'm, I'm not with them on it. One last final kind of tangential thought on this front is I do think like one thing that is giving me faith that there is a correction of sorts is just watching my generation like learn from the mistakes of or not the necessarily the mistakes but the mistakes that millennials were kind of led down the path of making in terms of accruing student loans that they couldn't pay back because there's been a huge free market correction with young people who are like trade schools are exploding college enrollments going down and not to say that everyone should drop out of college that's not my message but i do think that there there are a lot of young people who are looking at a very broken system and are saying they're not going to participate in it. And I think we should do everything we can to empower kids to make their own decisions if there's a viable path forward without a degree. And a lot of companies are are rising to the occasion and dropping their requirements. And like IBM, for example, has a great apprenticeship program for kids that want to go into tech. And I, I think that that's you know, one pathway forward without the government necessarily needing to intervene in the same way. Just thinking about moving forward, but the Biden administration did announce what they call a temporary on-ramp program. And for one year, starting October 1st, people who miss student loan payments won't go into default and they won't be referred to debt collection agencies and won't take a hit on their credit score. So it seems like this fight is going to continue and the Biden administration is going to continue to do everything it possibly can to effectually create some form of student loan relief. And and my sense is they're, they're going to pick a fight with the Supreme Court again over the Higher Education Act because it's good politics for them, like at least as, as they see it. I, I have questions over like in a, in a world, and we'll talk to Richard Kallenberg about this in a second, but in a world where the de Democratic Party should be focused more on class which is a, a big belief that I hold. And mm -hmm. you know, even Obama said this in a recent interview. Uh, I'm not sure it's great to basically subsidize middle and higher income people's higher education at the expense of people like a plumber, for example, right? Which is 
the comment I made that yeah. got one of our, I think, uh, trades uh, listeners to to push back on me. But I guess like the point is the like the average person who doesn't go to college st- still pays taxes, right? And that mm-hmm. person is you know effectually subsidizing people who do go to college. And I think if you're like, hey, like I'm subsidizing nurses and doctors, that person's gonna be okay with it. If you make the right argument, if you're saying I'm subsidizing sociology degree, you know, holders and whatever, like then it becomes a tougher sell. And I think the Biden administration and anybody who supports relief needs to be clear about what they're asking of taxpayers and voters. And I think in this case, it's it's still pretty broad. Or the person who took a second job to not have to take out loans or the person who paid off all their loans last year. Yeah. Well, let's turn to affirmative action. Obviously, huge case handed down at the end of the term. And I'm excited to welcome on our guest, who is Richard Kallenberg, who's an education and housing policy researcher, writer, consultant, and speaker. He's a senior fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute and a non-resident scholar at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy and a professional lecturer at George Washington University's School of Public Policy and Public Administration. He's got a lot of hats. And one of those is he was a expert witness uh, in the very cases that were before the Supreme Court, so the UNC case and the Harvard case, I read much about Richard's work within the briefs that were submitted to the Supreme Court. And Richard, before we jump into it, I just want to say welcome to the podcast. I've been meaning to talk to you for a long time. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm excited to be here, Robbie. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's exciting. Ricky's been writing about this a lot lately. Richard, you've been writing lot. about this for a long time. Um, and Richard, I want to start by just asking you what brought you even into this case. Like you're you're a known liberal, right? But who was brought in to actually uh, be an expert witness for the plaintiffs, who are, I think, by sort of you know conventional wisdom, viewed as more conservative leaning. So, what made you an attractive expert witness for them? Well, I think uh, you know this is clearly a case of odd political bedfellows. My reading of the, the research is that uh, a conservative Supreme Court decision striking down the use of race was going to lead to actually a number of liberal public policy results, which we're starting to, to hear about already. So, you know, getting rid of legacy preferences, giving a meaningful uh, leg up to working class students of all races. I mean, right now, a, a place like Harvard brings together fairly wealthy students of all colors, uh, which is is much better than wealthy all-white population. But, uh, but, you know, they have 15 times as many rich students as low-income students. And I saw my involvement in the case as uh, helping uh, universities transition to uh, a better form of affirmative action that would give a break to to low-income and working-class students of all races, a, a disproportionate share of whom uh, are, uh, you know, black and Hispanic students. I, I will say quickly, you know, th- this was not an easy decision. I have a lot of friends in the civil rights community. I work with them on school desegregation issues, housing issues, uh, but I do think that the current, you know, the existing system was uh, was really tilted toward the wealthy, and so. I'm, I'm hoping now, you know, liberals will, will join with some conservatives to, to create a better affirmative action. 
So one of the things that this case or these cases uh, provided was an unusual glimpse into the notoriously opaque admissions admissions process, particularly at Harvard. And just to layer in some statistics here of what you're referring to in terms of just how connected a lot of the typical students are there. 43% of white students at Harvard were revealed to be either recruited athletes, legacies, children of staff, or on the dean's interest list, which is effectively, you know, a financial interest list. And in a period of time where they had a 6% admissions rate, kids that were on the interest list got 42.2% acceptance rates, um, faculty and staff 46.7%, and legacy 33.6%. And this is something that has irked me personally quite a lot. I have a bone to pick as a boarding school alum, but also first-generation college student at the same time. I saw a lot of the uh, pipeline of privilege straight into these schools. And, you know, I know it's a little rich coming from me, but I do think this is an enormous issue um, in terms of socioeconomic diversity. And so I'm curious to hear from you, Richard, um, what sort of reforms you hope to see going forward. I've, I've heard that you're um, interested in removing legacy admissions entirely. And how, how exactly can you go about doing that? You know, universities, to their credit, do care about racial diversity. So there will be intense pressure on them to, to figure out new ways to get racial diversity without using race per se. And among the, among the most obvious options are getting rid of these uh, legacy preferences that, as you pointed out, tend to benefit, uh, you know, white students and, and wealthy students. Uh, same is true of the, preferences for faculty, children, uh, for donors, kids. Uh, so I think those those need to go. I think there will be a lot of pressure on universities to change those practices. Um, we're seeing some of that already. Uh, in addition, I think it's important that universities provide a leg up to economically disadvantaged students of all races. And uh, Harvard does a little bit of that, but uh, the preference for Black and Hispanic students was uh, you know, it was quite a bit larger than for low-income students. And so I think we'll see those, those preferences ramp up. And to be clear, uh, in the modeling, it was, it, was, it was demonstrated that you could give a really substantial break to economically disadvantaged students, working-class students of all races, and still maintain very, very high academic standards. So Harvard's uh, median or mean GP, uh, SAT went down one percentile points from 99th percentile to 98th, and the GPA, the high school GPA, stayed the same. So there are lots of talented, uh, low-income and working-class students who will, uh, you know, could benefit from this new system. And I think, uh, you know, part of the issue is that working-class Black and Hispanic students have been mostly shut out up till now. You know, 71% of the Black and Hispanic students at Harvard are from the top one-fifth of the, their economic, uh, economically of those, those groups. And so uh, I think we're going to see a transformation of admissions at these institutions in order to create racial diversity. And it'll be a much fairer system that will have a lot broader public support and stronger legal support as well. And Richard, one of the, the common sort of critiques of your work is that if one person, you know, if, if a university were to move to economic affirmative action, essentially, or preferences based on your economics uh, at the exclusion of race, then that would disproportionately help white students. So um, address that critique, but also address the the question of 
what kind of economic preferences do we give? So do we give it based on income? Do we give it based on wealth, which is something you've written about? Do we do it based on neighborhood and the quality of your school? Like, What mixture would you recommend? And what does your model say about what that mixture would yield in terms of a student populace? Right. That's a great, great question. And so when people hear the term, you know, economic affirmative action, they go right right to income. And I think family income is important. But if you left it at just that, then you wouldn't actually be providing a, a fair system of admissions because some, some low income or working class students live in wealthier neighborhoods uh, or middle class neighborhoods, at least, and others live in high poverty neighborhoods. Some people of the same income level have more wealth or less wealth. And the reason it's important to, uh, to look at a broad variety of factors, wealth, neighborhood, income, parental education, is twofold. Uh, first, as a matter of fairness, that's, that's appropriate. Uh, you know, having a, coming from a low wealth family means you can't buy a house in a uh, neighborhood with strong public schools, uh, can't afford private schools. And so uh, wealth should count at admissions as a matter of fairness. But the second piece is that uh, it wealth and neighborhood concentrations of poverty better capture our history of racial oppression in this country than does income alone. So the, the research suggests if you gave a preference based on income, it would end up benefiting a lot of uh, low-income whites. Um, however, if you use a more complex uh, calculus of socioeconomic disadvantage, include things like wealth and neighborhood, then you get a much higher uh, racial uh, payoff. Uh, but to be clear, I'm not doing it, you know, I'm not advocating that just for, for racial reasons per se. It's, it's just fair to consider all those factors. And importantly, universities have access to all this, this data. Uh, they're, they're almost unique. I mean, banks and universities know information <laughs> about wealth and further detailed socioeconomic uh, information than, than just income. Uh, but uh, so, so this is, is not only, I think, the fair thing to do, uh, the thing that will produce more racial diversity, but it's also a practical approach. And I'm curious to get your response to what seems to me uh, the group of schools coming out and saying like, yes, this ruling happened, but here's how we're going to wiggle our way around it. And I think of Harvard in particular pointing to the fact that the majority opinion said that there's nothing stopping you from writing about your race. And one thing since I've been reporting on this issue quite a bit that I heard from actually a student of color that was really interesting to me is she was saying something to the effect of like, she's, she's very pro affirmative action, but she feels now that this ruling is going to place, um, students of color in a position where it kind of flattens their personality and they're being incentivized to write about their race because Harvard has basically said as much. And so what are, what is your take on how schools are going to try to get around this and whether there's actually going to be teeth on enforcing the fact that this is supposed to be a race blind process now? That's another great question. I mean, we, we've seen a lot of writing around kind of one uh, controversial paragraph where the majority opinion does say uh, that you can use, uh, you can describe your, your race in your essays, how that's affected your life. To my mind, that's a huge step forward because rather than simply, uh, you know, checking a box and assuming someone who comes from a very wealthy background because 
uh, of skin color is going to you know, have, have faced all sorts of adversity. Instead, students will be asked to, to explain their situations. Uh, and that's ultimately grounds for admissions based on a system of fairness. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, you've overcome obstacles, including obstacles related to racial discrimination. Uh, and that should count in admissions. Uh, you know, that could, could apply to an Asian student, for example, who no law, you know, doesn't currently benefit from race-based affirmative action. Uh, so I think that's, I'm glad the court provided that, um, that opportunity. Uh, having said that, I think that if universities go too far with that, they'll clearly get in trouble. So you have the dissent, Justice Sotomayor saying, uh, you, you know, this is lipstick on a pig. So she didn't, she didn't buy the idea that universities could really use, uh, you know, uh, exploit that, uh, that opportunity in a, uh, in a very, um, pervasive manner. And, and the majority opinion itself said, you know, it cautioned universities. Don't, to, don't just try to do what you were doing in the past, uh, without, um, you know, just by doing it through the essay. So, uh, so it's a, it's a complicated question. We, we will know more when the next case comes up before the Supreme Court. But my sense is that university counsel who are, you know, fairly cautious by nature, uh, will really push universities to provide a, a big boost to economically disadvantaged students. And then in, in discreet and, um, careful ways, consider the obstacles that a student has overcome that relate to race discrimination. But, you know, the majority opinion really went after the, the diversity rationale for using race in admissions. So I think a, a student who writes about how racial discrimination affected her opportunities will, will have a better, uh, uh, better chance of, of complying with the law than, than a student who just said, you know, my, my race is really important to me and I'm going to add a lot to Harvard for that reason. I think that gets, much closer to the system that was was struck down, uh, and I don't think I answered your question about this. You know, the burden that that places on students. I I don't. On, on the one hand, I I understand the the concern. Uh, on the other hand, if a university is in essence going to give a preference in admissions, then I think it's not uh, inappropriate for the university to ask students to to explain uh, why their particular record doesn't reflect their full potential. This may not be your area of expertise, but do you have any sense of the validity uh, and chances of success of some of these legal efforts that are now being mounted against legacy admissions and basically trying to tie legacy admissions practices to racial discrimination in favor of white students and whether like bottom line do you think they have any chances of succeeding i think i think they should succeed uh i i don't know whether they they will but um i back in 2010 i edited a book called affirmative action for the rich uh, about legacy preferences and in that book there are several different chapters presenting legal theories as to why legacy admissions should also be, uh, be struck down. And, and one of them was the theory that's being advanced right now, which is disparate impact, that it disproportionately hurts uh, Black and Hispanic students. And that's one avenue. 
But there were others as well, that the Equal Protection Clause was animated in part by the concept of, uh, you know, that ancestry discrimination was wrong uh, and, and that, uh, you know, anti-Black discrimination was a subset of ancestry discrimination. But legacies, uh, you know, that's kind of the quintessential things that, that we that we fought uh, the American Revolution to get beyond was the idea that, it, you know, inheritance and aristocracy was uh, was the appropriate path for for America. We, we rebelled against that. And uh, so I think there there is a strong case that legacy preferences um, are are illegal and, and unconstitutional. Uh, I think there'll also be, an, um, you know, and there already are some efforts mounted in the political sphere uh, to um, to eliminate legacy preferences. And and back in 2010, I tried to uh, encourage my friends in the civil rights movement to to bring action against legacy preferences. And I I couldn't get them to go along. I think in part because there was a uh, a sense that universities were providing r- racial preferences. So you know why attack your friends, in essence. Um, but now that situation has completely changed. There is no racial affirmative action. And so I think legacy preferences will, um, I think they will fall at most places, either because of, you know, intense uh, pressure, uh, public opinion pressure on universities, that this is really unfair, or legislative action, or possibly, as you're suggesting, legal action that prevails. One thing that I find fascinating in the coverage is how little anybody's been talking about the Asian American plaintiffs and whether they were in fact discriminated against and what the future looks like for them. I know you've done some work on this. Um, Can you give us a sense of what you have found in terms of how Asian American students were disadvantaged by these processes at UNC and at Harvard and what if anything, you could tell uh, the future will hold for them? Because I know some of the models that you ran around you know, alternatives to race-based affirmative action changed the, the makeup of Asian American students in uh, the student populations of some of these schools. So I think the evidence was much clearer at Harvard than at uh, the UNC that Asian Americans were being discriminated against. Uh, vis-a-vis white students uh, at UNC, you know, just affirmative action in general will um, disadvantage uh, non-preferred groups, so Asian Americans and, and whites. But at Harvard, there was uh, evidence of an actual penalty associated with being Asian, and so that's part of what I think um, uh, revealed the uh, some of the the uh, the bigger and deeper difficulties with the Harvard system. Uh, under the modeling, if you shift from race to class, uh, you see a number of changes. Uh, one is that the percentage of socioeconomically disadvantaged students goes up, as one would expect. Uh, the percentage of white students goes down. Uh, the percentage of Asian American students goes up under class-based affirmative action. Percentage of Hispanic uh, students goes up under class-based affirmative action. And, uh, you know, somewhat troubling to me in the initial uh, simulation, there was a decline in, a modest decline in black representation. But 
we didn't have data on on wealth, uh, which we talked about before as being so important to capturing the legacy of slavery and segregation and redlining. So, uh, so I think that that uh, w- we shouldn't assume that that the har- the modeling done in the Harvard case. Uh, represents the full potential of class-based affirmative action to, to boost black admissions. Um, but, but importantly, Asian American admissions did, get, did rise uh, under class-based affirmative action once you took away uh, legacy and uh, racial preferences and uh, other forms of uh, preference that tended not to benefit or tended to hurt Asian American students. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you have a book out or coming out. Do you want to plug your book? Sure. Oh, th- well, thank you for the opportunity. Yes, it's uh, it's called Excluded, uh, and it's about housing. the The subtitle is How Snob Zoning, uh, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Builds the Walls We Don't See. And and it's it's actually quite parallel to oh, the yeah, affirmative course, action yeah. book uh, or affirmative action research I've done, in the sense <laughs> that. Uh, I think that American liberalism is is appropriately focused on on discrimination based on race, but has a big blind spot uh, when it comes to discrimination based on class. And so we have in politically liberal areas uh, some of the worst forms of exclusionary zoning that uh, that hurts working class people of, of all races. And uh, and so I'm hoping to interest people in uh, taking on those those challenges. You know, li- liberals appropriately oppose uh, building a wall to Mexico, but have erected these, these barriers uh, to low income and working class people who want to live in their own, their own uh, upper middle class communities. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I've uh, followed your work quite a lot in my reporting, so appreciate what you do. Thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, our phone number is 321-200-0570. Leave us a voicemail and we will be back here with a new episode on Thursday.